0: Thank you very much, Chuck, and it is indeed my distinct pleasure and honor to have the introduction of our special guest speaker. And I would like to do so by probably violating the rules of introduction by making a short personal reference, but I think it might be in order. In the very early 1940s in Fort Benning, Georgia, my uncle, then there was a captain or a Major Elmo Patton, was passing down the receiving line at a military reception. Commanding officer and his wife were at the head of the line, and their names were, of course, General and Mrs. George Patton. When my uncle, a mere captain or major, progressed in line to the commanding officer and his wife, General Patton turned to his son, our speaker tonight, whose attention was occupied elsewhere, gave him a swift kick in the rear and said, Turn around, son. Say hello to your cousins. (laughs) Of course, as we know, General George Patton, Jr. went on to immortality with his successes in North Africa, Sicily, Europe, the Battle of the Bulge, and the final victory. It is unfortunate, however, that our national leaders did not heed his warnings at the end of the Second World War. Our speaker tonight, of course, is Major General George Smith Patton. He was born December 24, 1923, in Boston, Massachusetts, the youngest of three children of Major George S. Patton, Jr. and Beatrice Eyre Patton. General Patton graduated from the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and from the United States Military Academy at West Point. He holds a master's degree in international affairs from George Washington University. The general also attended the Armed Forces Staff College, the United States Army. Armor School and the United States Army War College. General Patton served in Korea as company commander and volunteered for service in Vietnam, serving initially as special forces operations officer concurrently with an assignment at the American Embassy in Saigon. One of his several other Vietnam assignments including his included his service as commanding officer the 11th Armored Cavalry Reg- Regiment Peacetime missions include General Patton's service as follows, headquarters and student company commander and commanding officer of the tank training center in the 63rd Heavy Tank Battalion, respectively in Germany, and let me add that General Patton's career in the United States Army includes approximately 11 years of European service alone, company tactical officer with the Department of Tactics at West Point, and similar duties at the Executive Department of the United States Naval Academy. Assistant Commandant of the United States Army Armor School at Fort Knox, the Director Security Assistance with Headquarters at the United States European Command, and Director of Readiness Headquarters DARCOM. The general's decorations include the Distinguished Service Cross with one oak leaf cluster, the Silver Star with one oak leaf cluster, the Legion of Merit with two oak leaf clusters, Distinguished Flying Cross. Meritorious Service Medals, several South Vietnam Decorations, and the Purple Heart. Of course, as you know, the Purple Heart is not awarded, it's thrust upon you. I'm also pleased to say that General Patton serves on the advisory board of Western Goals Foundation and Western Goals Endowment Fund. General Patton is married to the former Joanne Holbrook, and they reside on their farm in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Our speaker's topic is the dangers of the Peace and Freeze movement. Please join with me in a warm Rocky Mountain welcome to General George Patton.
1: Members of the Council, guests, members of the John Birch Society, this is certainly a unique experience for me while preparing for these remarks. I reflected that although I've, I've known of your society and what it represents for many years, this is the first time that I've had to face it head-on. My closest association with it has been through its current leader, you've just heard, Larry McDonald of Western Goals, and he has my admiration and respect always. As a dedicated and patriotic American now occasionally us generals you know we get the big head now we got helicopters and sedans and things to ride on ride around so I thought I'd start out by telling you a story about a general who didn't have the big head and it happened years and years ago at the Battle of Waterloo Colonel Clément was a very very distinguished brigade commander in that battle and unfortunately, at the very height of the battle, he was shot right through the head, right here. And the emperor was very upset with this terrible loss, so he directed that Colonel Clément be taken to his personal physician, Surgeon Larray, who was operating in the Hugomar farm on the western edge of the battlefield. And they took him there. Larray looked at him and wrung his hands, and he said to himself, There's only one thing I can do. I just cut off the top of, of Colonel Clement's head and see if I can fix him up. And I have to do it. I'll take the brains off out of the, out of the skull and put them on the table and go to work on him. So that's what he did. And right at the middle of this operation, a young aide came in from the Emperor's staff. And he said, Is General Clement present? And the good colonel got up off the operating table, and he said, General Clément is not prison, but Colonel Clément is prison. <laughs> and the young aide said, ah, my general, the emperor has been so impressed with your conduct on the field of honor that he has promoted you to, to the rank of brigadier general. With that, the good general reached over, picked up the top of his skull, clapped it on top of his head, grabbed his sword in one hand and his pistol in the other, and went out to rejoin his brigade. And Leray, who was somewhat distraught by this, spoke after him, hollered after him, and he said, Ah, my general, you have forgotten your brains. (laughs) And the general turned around with the immortal words, Ah, my dear surgeon, now that I am a general, I shall no longer need them. (laughs) Now, I've looked over the principles for which this society stands, and it has my support, if that's important. One such statement extracted from Ed's, Ed Griffin's 1969 invitation to membership catches my eye as a lead-in for this talk, and that's the quote of one Joseph Kornfader who defected from the Communist Party in 1955, and I quote, To conquer a country from within? How do you do that? By capturing organizations that operate inside that country, a labor union, a farm organization, a newspaper, a teacher's association, a political club or group, a government agency. The Communist Party organizes inside these organizations, group by group. To fight them effectively, one must do the same thing in reverse. This quote is, to be sure, a Vietnam lesson. It seems to me that a principal John Birch function is to actively oppose communist organization from within as described by Kornfader in the foregoing. Thus this challenge to weaken our resolve or even worse defeat or destroy us as a champion of the free societies of the world and an anti-communist threat sets the tone for this, rem- these remarks tonight. Now let me point out to you a couple of things about me. First, by way of background, I am a conventional ground combat soldier with a good deal of unconventional or counter guerrilla experience. Thus, I do not pretend to be a nuclear expert and will avoid technical areas such as throw weights and yields and numbers. Second, whereas obviously the advent of general nuclear war would be the greatest threat to our national survival, I believe it to be the least probable since the Soviets seem to be doing fairly well against us without themselves resorting to those terrible risks. On the other hand, I also believe that terrorism or its sublimited war derivatives, which are the least risk to us nationally, are surely the most probable. The memory of Vietnam and our tragic strategic defeat there has caused our enemies to play this game more frequently and really quite well. We, however, are dealing in this new type of thing, this terrorist thing, with a brand of conflict which we do not really understand very well. Thus we are uncertain as to how to come to grips with it in America. Now the requirement for, some, for the formulation of some sort of specific policy to put a stop to that form of incursion must, in my view, stand as the highest national priority. Again, I emphasize that Vietnam is the inhibitor. Its memory is a genuine and dangerous force on our nation. The price of defeat, in my opinion, lies in the minds of our citizens who measure all similar incidents against Southeast Asia between 1961 and 75. Next, I do believe, as I know you do, that we are up against a worldwide communist, principally Soviet conspiracy. In this regard, I am heavily influenced by past experience. For example, after the Berlin Airlift, which I was required to support as a second lieutenant, in 1948 I decided with a friend to visit that great city. In those days we went everywhere in uniform. I went into several bars and restaurants during my brief visit, and before I could take off my hat and hang it on the hook, there were a number of drinks placed in front of me by anonymous people in the same building. We were respected at that time, and this type of gesture in that city, in my opinion, would not be repeated today. My year in 1961-62, while patrolling the Iron Curtain, taught me a great deal. No one, no one could do that type of service and come away as a Soviet or communist sympathizer. And finally, I must recount my first patrol in Vietnam in 1962 with a Vietnamese Special Forces Detachment. This was in the South Delta in a place called Kamau or near Kamau, and we had received a report that the Viet Cong had been in a village. We got into the village unfortunately after the Viet Cong had left and they had not been gone very long. The village chief's head was on the fence. His baby had been boiled alive in the stove in the house. And his wife had been skinned alive; forty percent of her body had been taken, of her skin of her body, had been taken off. But she was still alive. I walked in. And I hadn't seen anything like that before. And she looked up at me, and in French, she asked me to put her out of her misery. I went outside the, uh, and I was with this very senior special forces non-commissioned officer, master sergeant, Vietnamese. He told me in French, he said, ale, mo which means go. And I went outside and threw up. And I was standing outside the building not knowing what to do, and I heard a shot. And he came out putting his pistol back in his holster, and he was crying. And he looked at me in a most desperate way, and he said, Mon commandant, c'est une guerre très difficile, which means, Major, this is a very difficult war. And it still is. These incidents had something to do with moving me even closer to the conservative camp. And finally, Although there are definite national risks involved, I deeply believe (coughs) that these hostile movements aimed against us (coughs) can be neutralized since they are not without flaw. They can be overcome. The enemies of the United States are not invincible. There is disarray. There is weakness, military, political, economic, and social. We must never forget that. We must never forget that we are not the only country faced with a whole warehouse full of problems. We have plenty of troubled company worldwide to include from within the Iron Curtain. Now to my subject, those circumstances involving nuclear armament protests, the urging of a bilateral freeze of U.S. Soviet atomic munitions at current levels. It seems to me, at least from what research I have been able to accomplish in preparation for this, that there are two meaningful characteristics of these protests which are worthy of consideration. These address peace movements in general and their track record through the years since 1945. And secondly, we who concern ourselves with national survival must always recall the dismal record of the Soviet Union in its actions with regard to certain American arms control initiatives. These should be reviewed periodically by all of us, remembering throughout that the debate is certainly not about whether or not to wage nuclear war. The discussion is really based on how best to avoid one. Now, Dr. John Silber, the distinguished president of Boston University, in a recent address to the Cambridge Forum, is quoted here, and I quote, The peace movement today has a history that is very largely ignored. It is not often pointed out that between 1919 and 1939 there was a vigorous and successful peace movement comprising both popular organizations and government action. In 1921 the new German and Russian states signed the Treaty of Rapallo liquidating the quarrel between the two countries that had been carried on by former regimes. In 1922, the Washington Naval Treaty froze the existing strategic balance between the great powers by sharply limiting further development of the battleship and by destroying a number of new vessels already under construction. In 1925, at Locarno, the principal combatants of the First World War signed a series of treaties designed to guarantee the peace of Europe well into the present time. In 1928, the principal states, by signing the Kellogg-Briand Pact, forever renounced war as an instrument of national policy. In the years that followed, most of the states of the world adhered to this pact. In 1933, the members of the Oxford Union in the United Kingdom opted for peace by resoundingly supporting the proposition resolved that this House will in no circumstances fight king and country. In 1934, the English voted in an informal poll called the Peace Ballot and Peace won by 10.5 million votes to only 750,000. In 1936, when Hitler reoccupied the Rhineland, cool heads prevailed and war was averted. In the series of diplomatic triumphs, and I say that somewhat cynically, that followed negotiations successfully resolved conflicts on each occasion. In March of 38, the Anschluss. In September 38, Munich. In March 39, the annexation of Memel, Bohemia, and Moravia. And finally, in August of 39, the two states that had, for half a decade, threateningly confronted each other across Middle Europe, finally came to an agreement In the famous Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And so it went, as Silber calls it, the triumph of conciliation over confrontation. Three weeks later, ladies and gentlemen, the lights went out in Europe and World War II was upon us. None of these treaty initiatives were able to prevent or even deter the rise of Hitler and Joseph Stalin. And as Dr. Silber concludes, The Washington Naval Treaty restricted the development of the battleship by Japan, but left Japan free to develop the carrier task force that attacked Pearl Harbor. The Kellogg-Brion Treaty encouraged the world to forget the careful maintenance of the balance of power on which the maintenance of peace depends. The peace ballot and the Oxford king and country vote contributed to the continuing increasing philosophical confusion over how peace can best be attained. And in one sense, albeit a tragic one, peace triumphed. We saw the reoccupation of the Rhineland, the annexation of Austria, the Sudetenland, Bohemia, Moravia, and peace continued. Yes, peace was briefly preserved, cynically and falsely, and again a silver quote, and I think a very important one for this society. The true champions of peace are not the appeasers but those who urge that we be prepared for war, that we have the power to prevail in war, prepare and prevail. Those are the key words that must apply to those of us who oppose the advocates of this so-called freeze. So much for peace movements which apply historically, they're not new. However, they must be reviewed by the likes of us from time to time. Now, what are the record of the so-called agreements between these two great powers? Reflection on arms control always brings back a quote by one Charles Wright, who, writing on world stability problems, had this to say about a hypothetical conference between animals of the world. I quote, the lion well the lion wanted to eliminate all but all weapons but claws and jaws the eagle he wanted to eliminate all but talons and beaks the bear all but the embracing hug this is a this is a simple but meaningful comparison are arms limitation agreements with the kremlin the best strategy toward the maintenance of peace do we or should we trust the soviet union World peace is a Soviet theme, but on the other hand, a well-known Russian credo states that true peace can only come when the entire world is under communism. Promises like pie crusts are leavened to be broken. This is a 1905 quote by Lenin, and it sets the tone, which at least with this society, needs no further embellishment. So let's take a quick look at the record Here I take the liberty of quoting my good friend John Reese, who was present here in this hall, in his April article in American Opinion. I have paraphrased it somewhat in order to save time. As of the first of this year, the United States was signatory to a total of 65 treaties and agreements with the Soviet Union. A number of these affect sensitive security matters, including arms limitations, economic and technical cooperation, the use of nuclear weapons, and cooperation in outer space. Almost all of those that affect U.S. security were, initi- were initiated during the period of so-called détente. The liberals, who made American policy during the 60s and 70s, say that they urged a continuing process of negotiating arms limitation and other treaties in hope of teaching the Soviet, Union's how to, uh, Soviet Union how to behave properly as a member of the international community. They would simply be bound with the chains of international agreements. This was at best criminal negligence. The Soviet Union continued to operate on the principle of opportunism and pragmatism enunciated by Lenin years and years ago. Simply stated, this principle holds that whenever your own interests can be advanced by breaking a solemn treaty or agreement, you should do so. From its founding 65 years ago, the Soviet Union has looked upon treaties and agreements only as implements to further its political and military strategy of world conquest. As Lenin said, it would be, and this is a quote, it would be mad and criminal to tie one's hands by entering into an agreement of any permanence with anybody. Words have no relation to action, said Joseph Stalin. Otherwise, what kind of diplomacy is it? Words are one thing, actions are another. Good words are a mask for concealment of bad deeds. Sincere diplomacy is no more possible than dry water or wooden iron. Now, since you too may read, and many probably already have, this list of agreements and broken words so carefully put together by Mr. Rees, suffice it to say that they extend back to 1920, four years, or yeah, three or four years after the Soviet Union was initiated. A 1922 friendship agreement with Czechoslovakia, violated in 1945, again violated in 1948 and 68 by the infamous Red Army invasion of that nation. A 1926 non-aggression pact with Afghanistan. In that same year, a 20-year non-aggression pact with Lithuania. Similar pacts were signed with Le- Latvia and Estonia. And a few years, uh, just a few years later, Finland and Russia concluded an agreement in 1932. And as you know, Finland was invaded in 1939. And so on. I quote these simply to indicate that the record is an ancient one dating back to the very early days of Leninism. These and other recorded violations were recognized by a Senate committee in 1959 and I quote their conclusion. The Soviet Union keeps no international promises at all unless doing so is clearly advantageous to them. These are, uh, these are others, th- there are others clearly outlined and explained in the reference, to name just a few. The Atmospheric Test Ban Moratorium of 58, the Geneva Protocol of 25, and the Biological and Toxic Weapons Convention of 1972, and under the SALT treaties, which are more recent and germane to this subject and this gathering, I again quote Mr. Reese. From 69 to 80, The cornerstone of US-Soviet relations was the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, which were carried on by the Nixon, Ford and Carter administrations. The Nuclear Freeze Campaign's position paper, Soviet Treaty Compliance, concludes that for the Soviet part, a look into the history of Soviet compliance with nuclear arms treaties provides a good basis for anticipating Soviet accord with future treaties. My research indicates a total of nine SALT One violations, and although SALT Two was never ratified by the Senate, I understand that both participants agreed to act as if ratification had taken place. Accepting this context, then, we can list an additional nine violations. And there are others, all carefully laid out in the article I refer to. He notes six under the so-called Anti ballistic missile treaty of 72 between Brezhnev and Richard Nixon. He explains the backfire bomber omissions under SALT II. These lists are long and arduous, brimming with technicalities, and, I'll, and I will not attempt to go over them here. Now, where does all this bring us? We today, or at least some of us, are addressing the freeze issue. Surely well-meaning people in the media, on the Hill, and in the religious community, together with a high percentage of the American public, support it. I, too, would support it if I felt that it would be mutual and truly verifiable, if I thought the Kremlin could be trusted. But I sense no discussion of a freeze or reduction of strategic armaments within the Soviet Union. I doubt that there will be one, since the Kremlin would certainly support a freeze to preclude our catching up, yet some would follow the path of unilateral freeze, hoping fervently that our example would force Russia to follow our lead. And I just—I uh, was driving through Boston yesterday, going to the airport, and they got a new bumper sticker up there that I'm sure the John Birch Society would love to have—a little thing they stick on the bumper. Arms are for embracing. I thought you'd enjoy that. (laughs) I simply ask that America study the Soviet record of trust and credibility as far back as 1921, just a few years after the emergence of communism. Hostile strategy dictates that if war came, any type of war, the Soviet Union must, of course, be capable of winning it. But they would certainly prefer to attain their goals without war They thus conduct European covert operations which stir up the fear of nuclear war. Although a single Soviet influence action may have minor impact, the overall effect is extremely dangerous. Now the strategy they use is well thought out, constantly exploiting the existence of numerous bodies in Western Europe who are mesmerized by a peace movement. They are then captivated by these notions, protesting American weapon systems, which in some cases, ladies and gentlemen, have not even been deployed, and in other cases are still on somebody's drawing board, in GE or whatever. Yet they tend to ignore the SS-20 missile, which commenced deployment in 1977, and with its 3,000-mile range, changed significantly the strategic balance. Thus, these groups assist in lubricating a climate which pressures free world governments toward the relaxation of defense measures and could salute and support Russian arms proposals. Where and how would a U.S. peace movement and freeze place pressure on the Soviets? On the SALT I violations and unratified SALT II? On the imprisonment of the minuscule Soviet peace movements? in Siberian jails and substandard mental hospitals, on the Soviets' unwillingness to allow on-site inspection of arms control measures, on the atrocities including the use of chemicals in Afghanistan and Laos, on the suppression of free trade unions in Poland. No, there's nothing, nothing, in my opinion, that can put pressure on the Soviets except a strong national will dedicated to the freedom and continued independence of the United States and a U.S. security-strength posture which gives them pause to consider the price of some initiative which could involve military operations. Now, when President Carter, faced with a public opinion that forced two of his predecessors from office, won his election vowing to cut defense spending and cancel the b B-1 bomber, subsequently proposed a sweeping arms reduction at Geneva in early 77, the Soviets chuckled. Why negotiate a deal with an administration which is unilaterally opting out of the world power picture? When President Reagan was elected on a platform calling for overall military and technological superiority over the Soviet Union, this bothered Moscow, which then adopted an embryonic nuclear freeze movement and swung the weight of its resources behind it. (coughs) The Soviet puppet World Peace Council and its US branch, the US Peace Council, exploited the movement. The high point of their success is perhaps illustrated in last year's disarmament rally outside the UN in New York. Over a half a million Americans, only a few of whom were actual communist operators, demonstrated. Signs and banners criticizing our American president were numerous. Signs and banners criticizing the other side were nearly negligible. All of this could perhaps be called innocent sport because there appears to be a growing tradition in our country to, uh, to elect an administration and then after it is in office embark on a program to destroy it either individually or collectively. Obviously, this could transmit wrong signals to the Kremlin, assuming that America again and again has been immobilized by internal pressures. Thus, Russia has the, giving Russia the latitude to place troops and missiles in Cuba and Nicaragua and get away with it. And as I understand it from some late news I heard yesterday, troop strength in Cuba is again on the rise. Perhaps the best way to place this trust issue before a group such as this is to provide a quite well-known quote by the late lamented Brezhnev in 1973. I quote, Trust us, comrades, by 1985, as a consequence of what we are now achieving with detente, we will have achieved most of our objectives in Western Europe. We still have consolidated our position, we will have consolidated our position, And a decisive shift will be such that come 85, we will be able to extend our will wherever we need to. Now, what is the Kremlin track record as of this moment over the past 10 years? Frankly, not too bad. From Vietnam in 75 to the new regime in Ethiopia, Angola, Nicaragua, the Afghanistan incursion, Cuban dominance in Granada, the increasing hostile presence there, the El Salvador Insurgency, Nicaraguan supportive revolution in Honduras and Guatemala, a change in the balance of power in the Persian Gulf, <coughs> Suriname, and pro-Western regimes under siege in Chad and in the Sudan. And our subject of tonight, the freeze movement fostered and supported by Russia. Now that's a pretty good mouthful and it's a pretty good track record. Please, on their record of trust and credibility, since 1921, just a few years after the emergence of communism in, in Russia. Please remember that track record. Hostile strategy dictates that if war came, any type of war, the Soviet Union must, of course, be capable of winning it. Now, how about a solution? In this regard, it has been my experience that too often we criticize and condemn without offering alternatives or workable solutions. A counter-strategy, in my view, is our crying need which eliminates the catch-up-ball methods of today. It must consider seriously the termination of membership in the United Nations. It must be constant with as little change as possible between administrations. It must be sustained over the long term and must set priorities and try to stick to them, exploiting Soviet weakness and offsetting Soviet strength. It must significantly curtail high-tech exports to the Soviet Union. It must be supported by an intelligence system which in the world is second to none. It must accept the facts that Larry MacDonald's title, The War Called Peace, is upon us, and it must take take action now to wage that war called peace. It must do a little something about our State Department. (laughs) I have two solutions. Either give them some major surgery or give them a great big laxative or a little of both. (laughs) This policy must of course always be coordinated with the Congress, constantly and somehow, some way, we still have to punch through the media and educate the American people on the threat. Really, I believe that's the, that's the baseline. That's the foundation of the solution. Although I'm not a skilled technician in mass communications, it seems to me that television is the best available alternative by which to do that. Absent a sustaining policy... This nation cannot counter the pressures applied by the Soviet Union, be they strategic weapons talks or world trade. We've got to take this challenge, this relentless expansionist challenge, seriously. We've got to train for it, and we've got to train our youth for it. We've got to plan for it while developing a broadly based integrated strategy which will eventually counter and defeat it. As Mr. William Casey, the Director of Central Intelligence, has put it, we have to regroup. I emphasize that the group of fine Americans who are here tonight in this hall can assist in that regroupment. I feel that could and should be a major goal of your society. Now, John Reese and I were discussing this subject over the phone just a few days ago. We find it curious and a little sad that so often the American citizen who investigates a new refrigerator or a new car before paying out hard-earned money to buy it will buy a political movement at face value without a source check together with the identities and motivation of the source. The main domestic watchdogs of American freedom are private educational groups, the press, and for all its shortcomings, the Congress. But it is up to individuals working together to get factual information out to the man on the street. Issues affecting our very survival as a free people are too important to be left in the hands of a hostile media and politicians, many of whom are either indifferent or simply uninformed. Ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion, we're faced with an ill win, significant and regrettably gaining in strength. It is noteworthy in its power, its ideology, and its various policies, most of which appear to be aimed toward our total defeat. But it can be beaten. And as my last quote to you, I'd like to take a passage from Thoreau, which I think applies to this society. And I quote, There is no ill which may not be dissipated like the dark if you let a stronger light upon it. If the light we use is but a paltry and narrow taper, most objects will cast a shadow wider than themselves. This society can and should represent that stronger light. Good night, thank you, and God bless you and your efforts to maintain a strong and patriotic America. That was a, that was a
2: the general's father would have been very proud of that talk and we're very particularly Mm -hmm. pleased to have him come and want to assure him that uh, there are a lot of people out here in this crowd. Matter of fact, I'd guess about 100% that want to get us out. (laughs) (laughs) And there are a good number of these people that are out there passing out aid and trade petitions and getting their neighbors to sign those petitions to stop building common as missiles. There's any number of people out there that are in strong support of Congressman McDonald's resolution to restore the House Committee on Internal Security through Resolution 43, 48. But all of us have one common interest in everything we do, and that was a point that the General made in his finale that our job is to create that kind of understanding that will bring these things about. That is the whole purpose of this organization, of the John Burt Society. All we must find and use to win is understanding. And that was the principle on which Robert Welch organized the John Burt Society almost 25 years ago.